Welcome back to the Better Men, Better Ball Player podcast. I'm your host, Trey Cobb. I want to thank you for joining us on our 122nd episode of the podcast where we have a chance to talk to Kyle Wagner. Kyle Wagner is the Go Wags co-founder. Go Wags is in Central Pennsylvania, Bits of Baseball Academy. Uh, Coach Wagner and his Go Wag team, teams, an organization uh, known throughout um, Travel Ball for their developmental, their system, how well they can hit, how well they play the game, and um, their red line, red land, excuse me, um, the Little League team, you know, made national news for as far as they went into the Little League World Series, and Coach Wagner is a big part of that. Coach Wagner himself, um, as I said, he is the co-founder of Go Wags Academy. He's also the author of How the River Cats Won, as well as author of The Green Light Hitting, which we touched base about. It's his systematic approach about hitting and how they brought that system into the Go Wags, as well as Redland teams. Um, former player at Wake Forest University, uh, former player in the California Angels organization, coached at Elizabethtown College, coached at Wake, as well as was high school head coach at Redland High School from 2000 to 2008. Before then, he got into and went full time into the Go Wags Academy. Whereas he touched bases about the story about where his chance to impact all of Central Pennsylvania and not just Redland High School. So, touch base about that, uh, his system, you know, just how well he just communicates and has a, you can just hear the systematic approach come out through the conversation. Really well done. If you're not following him at Go Wags Kyle, great follow on Twitter. Loves the talk. Great teacher. Just an incredible thinker as well. Um, you know, so really thank Coach Wagner for giving some time to talk um, his systems, talk baseball, and uh, it really was a, a great conversation full of my notes, and I can't wait to the next time we talk. Big shout-out, too, to our sponsors, Netting Professionals. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting Professionals specialize in design, fabrication, installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugout, Scoreboards, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals continues to provide quality products and services to many recreation, high school, and college fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all the latest products and projects. So, again, big shout-out to Will Meyer, those guys at Netting Pros. They do it right. And I'm great to hear that guys are using their stuff. Uh, it is very quality high. Very quality stuff. So, thank you guys. Uh, enjoy the great conversation with Kyle Wagner. You know, that when, when you're a twin, that, that, that relationship shapes a lot of how you see the world. And uh, I got I, I became the head coach at my alma mater, Redland High School, in 2001. And, you know, my goal was, I thought, to turn Redland into a powerhouse at that time. And um, 
and then in, and we were doing some creative stuff, but mostly just the stuff that was out there, Steve English B stuff with hitting, and it was uh, some of the weighted ball stuff. And I started to dive into that. And then my brother came to me and said, do you think you could help all of central Pennsylvania with this model? And I said, sure. And so then we started go wags and then, you know, your time was, was spread thin. I didn't have time to coach anymore. So that's why I had to resign the position. And then from 2009 to 2016, we went all in on go wags. And I, that's when I got out of the dugout and got into the cages. Hmm. Yeah. So it was more along the lines of you just, like you said, wanting to help central Pennsylvania. Well, yeah. And, and selfishly, I had a, I had a six year old at the time, brother, a five year old. So uh, financially we thought, Hey, let's, let's pull our resources. Let's put our heads together and, and do this thing. Knowing that, that the, the dividends would probably pay uh, when our boys became high schoolers. And mm -hmm. that, that, that I think was truly, you know, I'm, I might be overstepping my bounds here, but I, I think central Pennsylvania baseball in that little window there, when the 20, I'm going to say 2018 to 2021, 22, like that was, we, we had a, a boatload of people coming through and, and I'd like to think that go Wags was, was a big part of that. So that, that was, that was what we set out to do. And I, I think we were probably successful in that regard. Yeah. I mean, and just being in the area for sure. I mean, you're not, <clears throat> you certainly know when a go Wags team was around and knew they had, we going to have some players. So like, um, it was, was it like when you, I mean, you said you were, it was kind of newish, like, was it something that you had learned when you were at wake or was it something that you learned through like with the angels? Like, what was it that, like you said, with the, the new, newer philosophies that you were adapting? Yeah. So, um, you know, when, as, as a, as a young player, I think every player that starts playing baseball has a dream of being a big leaguer. Uh, and, I, I think my situation was unique in that my twin brother was very much an elite athlete. I mean, he was a first round draft pick by the Cardinals. He played, he pitched and played the outfield for team USA. Um, mm. I was, I was good from the the standpoint that I I knew I could catch and I could throw and I could run a little bit, but everyone that coached me was like, Wags, if you, if you hit, you'll play in the big leagues. If you hit, you'll play in the big leagues. So that's a really, hard message to hear when it's your dream and basically someone is is pointing out like this this one deficiency this thing is keeping you from your dream so i think i became obsessed with it like why mm. couldn't i do it? And, it and it was different for most for 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 most it's you know you you well i it just things didn't break your way maybe you weren't good enough but with me i had this this identical twin brother that was just better than me i mean he he was he was a much better hitter than me. He led Team USA in slugging. I mean, that was when Todd Helton was on that team. And, you know, that's Brett was like, yeah, I, I led Team USA in slugging. I was a left-handed pitcher and I hit. So I always had this burning desire, like, why? Why why me? Why couldn't I do what he could do? And so I, I, I guess in many ways I set out to make sure that others wouldn't suffer that same fate. Uh, certainly my son, my nephew – and all the people that wanted to play with my son and my nephew. And, and 
you know, we, we collected a, a, a bunch of talent uh, in central Pennsylvania. We, we went into Jersey, we went out to Pittsburgh and people liked my message. They liked the way I ran a practice. They liked the enthusiasm in which I coached. And, but more importantly, their mom and dad knew that they were getting sound, competent coaching and uh, on weekends when we would outscore teams by large margins, that was all the proof they needed. So I, I, I think, I think that was the, the message that resonated the most. Not only are we successful, but we're having a blast doing it. And I, I love like, and so have you always, uh, you, you've been a teacher ever since that you got done or was that, 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 Huh. Yeah. So I was, a, I, I got, I actually told my class this the other day. Cause, um, I, I think the single, the, the only metric that, that a teacher or a coach at, at, at the youth level should be evaluated on is, are the people excited to be in your presence? Are they excited to be there? Nothing great is ever accomplished without enthusiasm. And I had, I had uh, former student athletes tell me Wags, you're a better coach than you are a teacher. This was when, you know, I had young children. I was a high school coach. Uh, I cared immensely about developing the Redland baseball program. And quite frankly, I didn't have enough hours in the day to devote to teaching. Like I just didn't. And that's the way it works. And so I didn't study teaching. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't care deeply about it because I had other avenues where I invested my time. And then when I got out of the dugout, and when I got out of Go Wags in 2016, essentially, essentially baseball was done for me as a coach. I mean, no longer was I in a dugout. No longer was I in the cage working with players. All I had were my students. And that's when I went totally all in on, on what that should like look, look like and what that could be. And that's when I started to restructure my classroom to be more like my practice field. I, I wanted, first and foremost, I wanted them excited to be there. And, and then I had to actually really do some reflection and think about how I wanted to change my practices and my, 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 and my classes really. Yeah. So like what, what were those, I guess, what could you say is like, uh, how you structured your practice? Like, so what are, like, what does a good practice look like for you? Yeah. I, um, so I heard FP Santangelo say one time, and I've never forgot it. I, I believe it. He says, uh, hot practices, cold games. And the idea is the games are the players, the, the game. That's, that's what, that's what their time, that's their time to shine. That's, we want to step away and let them be all that they've been trained to be. Uh, we don't want to be that nagging voice that, that complicates things. So that practice becomes critical for developing them, for teaching them. And, as I look back now, I honestly, and I tell people this, I honestly don't miss the games. I, I don't, I, I enjoyed the company. I enjoyed the parents. I enjoyed the guys, but games are stressful. I mean, like there's, there's a scoreboard and there's pressure situations. I, I lived for the practices. It was a strength of mine. I enjoyed it. People would, would drive uh, two hours to come to a one and a half hour practice. So I think, um, what I would always do is you wanted to give them something that they knew that, that they could look forward to. So the beginning of practice was always, I don't want to say scripted, but it was always something that they knew I would do. For me, when I was outdoors, it was always pop-ups. I would hit moon balls. Kids just loved 
catching pop-ups. It's, it's, it's great communication stuff. Uh, so often we neglect the pop-up. We're always repping ground balls, but those kids love the pop-up. So very few times were kids late to practice because they were begging mom and dad to get them there for pop-ups. And, and then, so what I would call that is I would call that a macro event. I, I always broke my practices up into macro, micro, macro, micro, macro. And that's, that's some technical jargon, but the, the macro piece is this very big team component where you get there and you're just having fun together. And then micro, I would break it down into like a, a, a team uh, or an individual defense kind of thing. Uh, and then I would go team defense and then maybe individual hitting and then wrap it up with a, a, a team competition hitting. And uh, my, 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 my musts, my musts, every time that I organized a practice, everything that I always did was framed around, will they like this? I mean, and as you get older, uh, older kids have to fall in love with the monotony of the game, but younger kids, you're trying to sell them on, on the beauty of the game, right? Sometimes they haven't learned that yet. So, you know, one of the best compliments I ever got, we were driving to practice and, and my son, said, Dad, what are we doing at practice? And he said, never mind, it doesn't matter. We always have fun. I, I know, I trust you. And that was when I was like, that's it right there. That's it. He knows all in one and a half hours, whatever you do, we're going to have fun doing. So um, I, my my go-to macro event in the middle of practice was always uh, runner on third, one out. I love it. It's uh, To me, it's invaluable. I don't think I found anything better. Uh, so runner on third, one out. You play live ball off the bat. Uh, you let the batter run out his hit. It could turn into second and third, one out, first and third, bases loaded. Uh, your your defense is reacting to what they see. You've got you can go corners in, infield in. You get rundown opportunities. It's just it's just golden. And, and then the end, we would always do a fun game that that they would remember on the car ride home. Talk to mom and dad about so mom and dad knew that they were having a blast. So you know I. I one of the things I tell people is overcoaching 101 is too much information and not enough inspiration. And I was never going to err on that side. I, I, I wanted my kids to love it. I think as a youth coach, I think, I think what we are tasked to do is to pass over kids with a passion for the sport and a baseline competency of that sport. I don't think we are ever going to see their greatest baseball, right? That's never for us. That's for someone else to enjoy. What we have to do is to make sure we turn them over with a love of the game and, and with a, with a competency in that sport. So that was always what I was trying to do. And, and, um, and selfishly, I wanted to have fun too. I'm a, I'm a big kid and I didn't want to go and be bored. I wanted to laugh and, and play with them too. So I designed my practices to be just like that. How, how, like, you know, and of course, as much as you guys know to, to hit and things like that, like, how were you able to make those kind of things fun? Because, of course, you were teaching. Yeah. And how were you able to teach and commit a structure in that fun environment that you're creating? So there's two ways to learn. One is explicit. One is implicit. And I think implicit is much, much sturdier. It's more robust. It, it travels longer. It, it sinks in. It withstands pressure. And what I mean by implicit is those things that they pick up through trial and error. So a classic thing that we would do, and we would do this, oh my goodness, we would do this uh, for as long as I can remember up until I had them at the very end, like 15 or 16. Uh, so a classic example would be no takes, no foul balls. So uh, implicitly, you tell a kid no takes, 
uh, no foul balls, what they do is they say, okay, so you're not going to let me take a pitch. So I need to be ultra aggressive. And now uh, I need to find barrels, right? So older coaches that throw batting practice can't necessarily make the ball move like a 16, 17, 18, 21 year old pitcher. So we can't, we can't throw these nasty sliders and change-ups. But what we can do is we could ask that hitter to, to be adapted, adaptable with his barrel, move his barrel laterally, uh, find, find that barrel when the ball isn't exactly where you want it. I know it's a ball. That's not what I'm interested in. I want you to find barrels when the balls are in tough locations. So that's the idea of the no takes. It's not about how good of an eye you have. That will come later. The no foul balls is designed to say, not only do I want you to find barrels, but I want you to be precise in your move. I want you to stay middle of the field. I don't want you to just swing wildly and hit it over the third base dugout and think you were successful. Right, right? That might that might be aggressive, but you're reckless. You're just ripping it foul. And then the older they get, what you can do is you can restrict the foul ball. Instead of just having having a foul ball being a foul line, you could create some some arbitrary boundaries. Like we would take trash cans and stick them in, like sort of move them off the foul line 15 feet, move them off the foul line 15 feet. And now no takes, no foul balls is, is a little bit harder. And if they hit a foul ball or if they took a pitch they shouldn't have taken, then they had to run out and pick up balls for me, like three or five balls, and bring it back and dump it in my bucket. Because I wanted that event to be a team event. I wanted them to be all in. I didn't want anyone out in the outfield. I think sometimes we create these these isolationist things. I, I wanted my guys to be together. I wanted them to talk together. I wanted them to to have some fun. And and you know you're a part of a team. So when I would do no takes, no foul balls, I wanted them all in. Any dads I had would go out in the outfield, and if they fouled one off, they would run out, pick up balls, and drop five balls for me in my bucket and go back in line. And sometimes we kept score, and sometimes we didn't. That was one thing we did. Uh, you know, another thing we did, which I think is is invaluable, is is uh, we would often do um, down three, six outs to go, right? So instead of instead of a normal batting practice. If you tell kids, Hey, we're down three, we got six outs to go. Now they're not competing against each other. They are a team competing against the scoreboard and you're the judge. Uh, and then, you know, you throw a ball, the first guy, and then you say single to center runner on first, nobody out. The cool thing about that is implicitly you teach pressure because what will happen is the kid that's up fifth starts to look and go, okay, so if this guy gets a hit and this guy gets a hit, I'm going to come up with the game on the line. And that's, that's where the magic happens. They're, they're internalizing that pressure. So it's not just batting practice for the skill sake, it's batting practice as a competitor. And those are some of the stuff that I think the kids really enjoyed. And, and when you get authentic celebration, when a kid, when a kid literally hits a home run, when they're down two and he hits a three-run homer to win it, like they go nuts. And that's that's the stuff that brings him back. That's the stuff that I think I was most proud of. That's cool. Yeah, that's, that's great. And then, like, this was something that, you know, you, you've taught high school. You know, you've coached, coached high school. Like, this is something that, like you said, you brought up to, like, your 16-year-olds and your high school kids, right, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I think sometimes – we look at older kids and, and see their developed body and say, Hey, it's, it's time for you to like 
embrace your future. And in your, in college, this is how it works and things get really serious and you gotta, you know, you gotta enjoy the mundane and do the boring repetitive stuff. Cause that's how you get to the big leagues. And okay, that, that might be true, but like, that's, to me, that's individual stuff. That's, that's stuff on your own time. That's early work at the big league level, you know, getting, working on all those things. But I have never met anyone that didn't enjoy a little bit of fun. And, and, and I believe that if, if you can do it, if you can do the fun stuff while you're teaching, like, I just think it sinks in. I, I think there's this, this sponge like effect that they're just enjoying it. They're playing and, and, um, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think that may have been the secret sauce for us was that our guys really enjoyed putting on the uniform and, and going to practice. And it just, it just showed up on game day. Like they, they just, they learned, they learned. And, and, and then all, what I could do is I could just sit on a bucket and clap my hands and, and just watch it unfold. But, but those practices for a coach are, that's their time. The game is the player's time, but, but practice time is the coach's time. And you've got to be organized, prepared. You've got to, you've got to make sure your assistants are on the same page. Um, and if, and if you do it right, it's, it's this seamless fun. And then, and then your kids learn and they're, and the olders are the older kids are coaching the younger kids. And it, and it's just, you know, it builds, it compounds on itself. It's, it's just, it's wonderful to see. It's what I miss the most truly. Practice the training. Yeah, I missed that. Um, how um, <clears throat> so like you had an hour and a half, you had an hour and a half, and you kind of touch base with the macro, the micro, the macro, and the micro, and you'd end with that, and like so, <clears throat> hour and a half time, you know, would like these be segmented blocks? Like you like like the twenty minute section, I guess. Like, um, just kind of thinking about like that down three two outs. Is that like a twenty minute segment there towards the end? Yeah, uh, and kind of what end. builds up to that. Yeah. So, so what I would do is I would do that, that macro thing at the beginning where I'm usually hitting balls and then I, and then I break it up into individual stuff. Uh, and then we're doing individual stuff. Um, and then, and then maybe something pops up in individual stuff. Like maybe, maybe we're working on, um, double plays up the middle. Maybe that's what we're working on. And, and, and we're working on double plays up the middle and then something triggers where I'm not, I'm not happy with what I'm seeing. I, I, I don't think that our middle infielders are communicating well, right? So I definitely want to go to runner on third one out, but maybe because our inf our middle guys weren't doing what I wanted, maybe I force a first and third one out. So I create that double play situation more often, right? I, I think when you prepare, when, when coaches prepare, uh, one of the things I always say is planning is more important than the plan. So and what I mean by that is if you have a plan, if you write your plan out, but you see something that you don't like because you've prepared and because you have all of these tools in your tool belt as a coach, you can adapt on the fly and go, okay, I didn't, I didn't anticipate my middle infielders were going to struggle this much. There's something off. They're not communicating. You know, I don't know why he, he constantly feels like, you know, he can't backhand that ball. Like, I'm not sure why he feels like he has to get in front of that thing. Why doesn't he trust his backhand? So when we go to runner on third one out, I'm going to put a guy at first. I'm going to force that that double play opportunity more in a real live setting. Right. So that's something that I would do. I, I was I was uh, very cognizant of the clock. Uh, I wasn't a big we're going to go over an hour and a half time. Uh, I think your guys 
give you intense effort when they know they're going to get out of there on time. I think when you betray that time trust, I think sometimes they get a little bit like, oh my gosh, now we're investing 30 more minutes here. You're going to take us to, I told my girlfriend, I would, I would call her and she's already mad. And now I'm going to have to explain this or, you know, so, um, you know, to, to answer your question, I'm going about it a long way, but macro, micro, macro, that, that macro could be a slight adjustment off of what I saw in individual time. And then that micro hitting, you know, I've got something in mind that I want to do, whatever that might be. Um, you know, maybe it's a quick, I always, you have to hit, like, I, I think you have to hit and maybe there's a cage in the back where you could partition some guys off and, um, Maybe maybe my my last ending hit game isn't that long. Maybe maybe instead of no takes, no foul balls, which might be a 20-minute finisher, maybe I just quickly bring them all in and goes, all right, guys, we're down, we're down three, six outs to go. And that's that's what we've got. That's what we've got. Right. But I, I was I was definitely big on the clock. I was big on adjusting. I was big on reading emotions. Uh, one of my favorite phrases is intent precedes content if if your kids know they're struggling at something in real time they're willing to listen so when you find that thing that they know they're not doing great embrace it and work at it right then and there don't don't put it off change and work at it immediately i think that's so good i just i just love the realness too of that you know like because i man it just shows like what a real good teacher you are like the the fact of uh, yeah we're gonna have a skeleton and we're gonna plan but like man like even for you to think that even that should be part of the plan too like all right well if we see something you know like even from a coaching standpoint of this of your staff when we see something nope we're gonna like you said embrace it what they're not doing and let's put them in a situation where they got to do it like I like that right. like so here's a question too let's say um uh runner third no outs right or yep. runner third um would you always hit it or would it be could be a situation where like do you ever like kids soft toss and hit it? Or do you, are you kind of controlling that because you want to see like that backhand to get the double play? So the, the, the runner on third one out was always a coach pitch live batted ball. Like, oh, we, okay. yeah, we wanted that to come off the bat and we wanted, and we could recreate all those different scenarios. Now, you, you know, so in, in, in skill acquisition work, they'll basically break down how people grow into one of two camps. It's the deliberate practice camp, which is, you know, let's be perfect at our execution. Uh, let's, let's make sure we have some master coach on hand and, and he can provide feedback as necessary. Right. So that would be fungo time. That would be a micro event. Like I'm going to work your backhand. I'm going to be really critical. I want to make sure you get the short hop. I want to make sure you you're working through the ball, whatever that is, that's that deliberate practice stuff. And that's in those micro moments when all the only thing that we expect is, is, is perfect. But when you transition to these macro events, that, that the other camp is what they call training ugly. And, and that's what I wanted there. I wanted a training ugly. I wanted, I have no idea what's going to happen to this batted ball and neither do you. And we have to react to what we see. And when we're in that training ugly mode, like mistakes are going to happen. Like we need to find out what our players are capable of, what they're prepared for and what they're not prepared for. If I'm scripting every ground ball, he can anticipate where I'm going to hit it. Right. So mistakes are, are much fewer there. And that's good. Like that's what we want. We want perfection in those deliberate practice mo models. 
But when we go to that training ugly model, big field, runner on third, one out, you have no idea what's going to happen. We bring the infield in. You don't know if he's going to hit you a short hop. You don't know if the guy's going to break. You don't know if it's a contact read. You have no idea. You have to adapt to what you see. And, and, and without a doubt, you're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. It's our job as a coach to create those mistakes in this practice environment so we can learn from them, grow from them, so they don't show up on Saturday afternoon, right? So when, when, when I was designing that practice, I need a little bit of both. The, the micro moments where the deliberate practice, perfection is, 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 is the standard. Uh, let's, let's, let's shoot for it. Let's coach them up hard. When we changed to those training ugly models, we expected failure. We thrived on failure. When we found it, we embraced it. And then we worked at it. We, if, if, if we found out that our, our first baseman, you know, potentially wasn't, he, he was struggling at that four hole ball. He didn't know whether to go attack it or give ground to the second baseman. Well, that was a teaching point. Why? What's the problem here? You're, you're not aware that he's in double play depth. It's one out. He shifted over right? Like he's nowhere to be found. He's over in double play depth. You have to be bold on that ball, right? Do you understand that? So those are the things that we were after in those training ugly moments. And you can't always get them in that deliberate practice stuff because you're isolated. It's just you and the first baseman. You don't, he's not aware of the second baseman's depth. So he doesn't have, he doesn't have this context with him. So uh, that that was what we were after in our practices, a little bit of deliberate practice, a little bit of training ugly uh, in the deliberate practice. Perfection is the standard and the training ugly. Find the mistakes, embrace them and coach them up. Oh, love it. Uh, um, and I was just just love to hear your thoughts on this is like when you get to the cage too, uh, yeah. and just thinking about like how, you know, how your brain worked and as much time you spent in the cage to 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 make more of, I guess, both the micro event and macro event. What would your thoughts be in the cage too? In the, so in the cage, th those become, those become these micro moments for now. Kids, kids are very vulnerable and kids have a hard time hit, hitting. Hitting is this one act that requires precision. And it's the thing that, that can bring the most fulfillment to the game of baseball but it can also, as a testament, I can attest to this, when you're not hitting and you feel like you're not hitting, it can tear you down. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have to be really critical uh, how you're going about this. If if the whole team is there, if you've got a bunch of guys in the cage, you're probably not going to spend time in deliberate practice. You're probably not going to really start coaching guys up. It's just not the right time. Players don't want to hear it in the moment. You might have subtle cues that you can fire away, just one – like if you've spent time with them already, that might be fine if you've got that communication. Uh, but but if you're in a group setting and you're in a cage, it's more about reps. It's more about competing together. It's more about that. If you're in a cage and it's you and another kid, just one-on-one -on -one or maybe one-on-two, -on -two, they have a good relationship. Uh, they're allowing themselves to be vulnerable. They're allowing themselves to be coached. Uh, you know them. Now you can get after it. Now you can now you can function under those deliberate practice models. And you know um, that green light hitting book. The reason I loved it was because to me, development is not linear, but development has a a purpose. There 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 is a a sequence I believe as to how things get taught. And you know when you talk to skill acquisition people, they'll talk about uh, proximal to distal. That means things grow from in to out. 
it's not it's not much use teaching a young kid how to how to how to manipulate his hands when his core isn't strong enough to to turn right so uh, the the green light hitting model that we functioned under at go ags was very precise in its nature if you're not if you haven't proved that you can do this then asking you to do that next thing is irrelevant like you've got to prove that you can do this and and uh we when i say we it was me and my coaches i trained them on this model they knew what to look for if um you know the 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 core had to work before you asked the smaller muscles to work and then once the core started to work then you could ask the smaller muscles to work and so when I would work in a cage, that was what I was looking for. I wanted to know where was this player? What, at what level was this player? What specific drills did he need? And uh, he knew it. His parents knew it. And we were very aggressive with how we proceeded in that regard. But cage time was was sacred time for us. Like we got after it there. And, you know, when when we got together as a group, when there were 12 and 15 of us, we had a lot of fun. It was social time. It was team time. That's why guys sign up to play baseball to be a part of something bigger than themselves. But when it was cage time, we we got after it. Like we, it was now it's time to hear honest messages and you trust me and and you know I've done my I've done my work and and I believe I I know what you need to hear and this is how we went about it. So like, what were some of the things that you love? Like, it's like competition wise, or like big thing that you would like to do in the cage. I know you probably weren't just simple. Just here, we go get your eight and see you later. No. Yeah. Um, so one of the, my big things that people seem to, to like is this idea of aggression precedes discipline is that uh, you we have got to get players moving fast before we can get them recognizing the strike zone. And this this idea of paralysis by analysis is real. The, the more choices we give kids, the slower they get. And at the young level, the best pitcher is the guy that throws the hardest. Eventually, as pitchers develop and they command corners and add pitches to their repertoire, they, they there's different reasons why they're harder to hit, right? Anyone that knows that 2-0 changeup is in your back pocket knows like, okay, well, <laughs> that's a different animal. But when you're young, they don't have the 2-0 changeup. It's just the guy that throws really hard. So what, what we would often do at that young level is – is is train them to minimize choices and 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 at the at the at the most basic level the choice becomes swing or not swing so if you if you can eliminate not swing you can get them you can get them to get to elite velocity right that's how you train them just take the not swing option get it out of there move under this idea of swing uh, this is under the reaction time research uh, simple choice and recognition reaction times. And so at the youngest level, we were working off of simple reaction times. At the highest level, we work off of recognition reaction times. We would do swing and miss early drills. We we would say, listen, just prove to me, prove to me that you can be too quick, right? So when, when, uh, when we were working with our young Go Wags teams, we would often do, and people, they, you know, people would come to our practices and they would say, this guy's crazy. And I knew I was crazy. It's not like you're telling me something I didn't know, but I also knew that, that on Saturday and Sunday, my guys would hit your best pitcher. When your guy was throwing rockets, my guys were not afraid. They were aggressive. They protected themselves with their aggression. If you threw a ball at their, at their chest, they would turn it around because they were literally trained to swing. 
uh, they and they knew they knew that they could be too quick on a fastball. So if they could be too quick on on a fastball, they could get to your fastball. You know, so at that younger age, we did a lot of a lot of quickness component stuff, a lot of swing and miss early stuff, a lot of, uh, like I said, no takes, no foul balls. Uh, we would transition into the breaking ball. We taught them how to hit the breaking ball under similar models. We would introduce the curveball and not let them take a curveball. We would say we would force them to swing and show me show me um, that you can find your barrel on this ball that's breaking down and away. And then over time, as they learned to hit it, they learned to know what pitches they could or couldn't handle. Uh, we, we wanted our athletes to be the judge as to what they couldn't swing at. And, and what would happen was, is, is naturally it evolves into the strike zone. But I think when you, when you're, when you reverse the process, when you tell them, Hey, these are the pitches you should swing at, and these are the pitches you shouldn't swing at. A lot of times you, you kill that aggression and, and then the takes aren't authentic. So um, it, 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 it was, it was, it was, it was great for us. I mean, you know, our guys, I, I, I think we, we won in 2015, we won the, the United States little league, uh, world series, our, our Redland team lost to Japan and what a run. Like it was our go wags team that ended up playing as a Redland little league. But I think that was the first time on center stage. They were like, what is this? <laughs> And it was it was it was a group of boys that grew up in a model that rewarded aggression. It it applauded swings and misses because at least there was a swing. Uh, it was it was a free and liberating way to play the game. And all those boys now know the strike zone, not because they were taught the strike zone, because the the game they evolved with the game. And as the pitcher got really really good then the balls that they could swing at swing at actually changed. And like you said, they realized which pitches they couldn't hit hard. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's why you take a pitch. You take a pitch because you can't hit it hard. Not because the the guy behind you is going to call it a, a ball. That's not why you take a pitch. You take it because you can't barrel it up. You know, where you like your timing was, you know, like yeah. this timing, like how does timing for you then play into that? Is it, is it, so I guess is is it those two like whether I wasn't on time for it to hit it hard or I got it, it was out of the zone I couldn't hit it hard. Yeah. So we had uh, there there's when we worked on timing the the way we worked on that is that plate is 17 inches so we wanted to make sure that first the bear the batter had the ability to move his barrel laterally late that was how we described it we wanted the batter to have the ability to move his barrel laterally late. If he could handle an inside fastball a little bit deeper, then he gave himself a little bit more reaction time deep, right? If if success on the inside corner has to be found out in front, he's always going to find himself cheating ever so slightly. When you cheat ever so slightly, now it's harder to stay back or it's harder to have that timing to those off-speed pitches. So once, once a player proved that he could move his barrel laterally late, then we started working with his lower half. And what we called, it goes by different names, but what we called it was impulse flexibility. And what that meant was, can you stay in your legs? Can can you, when when your front foot lands, do you, do you have the ability, instead of that front leg always bracing firmly and allowing the barrel to enter the zone, can you ride that front leg? Can you stay in it? Can you, can you push it into the ground almost? 
while you keep your hands back. And uh, again, is that something that we would train explicitly? No. Is it something that we would do implicitly all the time? Unpredictable batting practice. You know, we were always talking about we want you to be a great hitter, not a great swinger of the bat. Uh, don't don't be afraid to look silly. Find 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 the barrel. And and like the guys that come to mind, you know, I Mike Mike Trout has unbelievable impulse flexibility. He gets into that front side. Uh, back in my day, back in the eighties, I, I think about Wade Boggs, like just 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 staying through that front side, trying to find that barrel and. Mm. And so we, we would, we would talk about it. Uh, our kids didn't necessarily need to know it. Uh, mom and dad liked it. Mom and dad liked to know that, oh, wow, they've, they've got this thing that they believe will help on all occasions. And sometimes parents would say, why aren't, why isn't my son doing that? And I would say, cause your son can't move his barrel laterally late. Right. So if he can't do that, then he's always going to cheat and he's always going to be out in front. And so that that this this lower half stuff will come after he has the ability to manipulate his barrel up top. So again, it's not linear. Sometimes we would bounce back and forth between two. But uh, when you ask about timing, for me, the way you address timing is you have to have the ability to handle the ball deep. If you can handle the ball deep, you can wait on it. You can minimize that 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 being fooled. Uh, but but obviously. If you want to be successful off a 2-0 hanging curveball or a 2-0 slider, you, you're probably you, maybe you're, you're looking for it, but probably not. And if you still want to capitalize on that pitcher's mistake, that front, that lower half has to have the ability to, to absorb that momentum a little bit, so you can let that ball travel while you're into your legs. So that's what we worked on. And you talk about being laterally late. Like, how was your explicit training maybe for that uh, for laterally late? Yeah. So, so they would be able to show you that they could do that. Yep. Yep. So we would, what we would do is an example of that would be, we would do like, um, we would set up a T on the inside corner and then I would give them soft toss Mm. on the outside corner, just toss some balls. Right. So they're staying on my ball. I'm going to toss them a ball, middle of plate, middle away. And they're just staying on my ball, but they know that this ball is sitting on that inside corner. They can see it. It's sitting right there. And that's where we expect impact to happen. And every now and then, instead of tossing the ball, I would just say in, and they would have to take, they would have to take that inside pitch, not rip it foul. They would have to take that inside pitch, keep it middle of the cage. And when they do that, when you looked at it, you're like, okay, so you're understanding what we're after here. You're manipulating that barrel, not coming around it. You're manipulating that barrel from a, from an into an out, you know, you know, there's lots of things you could highlight but you're finding a way to put a barrel on a ball that is in a really tough location on that inside corner. So when you own that inside corner as an offensive player, you're, you're really setting yourself up for success. That, that becomes this, this first leaping off point for having great timing. And then once you get that inside location, now you can start handling, now you can start being really conscious of your lower half, helping, helping let that ball get deeper too. Awesome. So that was it. Was um, oh, that's great. So laterally late, just to be able to truly. Well, I guess could some people say like st- being able to stay inside the ball would yeah, that be kind of that be the same kind of language as what you're thinking there? Absolutely, stay inside the ball. But but um, 
you know, when, when you start to show kids, Hey, you need to handle this ball. You, you can get really pushy. You can, mm-hmm. you can start yeah. to, and, and that was what we, we, we desperately didn't want. So when I say laterally late, I would always give them that visual of, of, of what is actually moving this barrel laterally late. Right. And, and that's your, your entire posterior chain starts to move that thing. And that's what we wanted them to understand is that the posterior chain was doing that work for us. It wasn't like we were out and about, we were really feeling this like a, like a, a scap pinch or a shoulder shrug or however they could feel it. But we wanted them to know that there, there was a way to get to that inside corner authentically, but not, but not pushing, not disconnecting. Mm. So that's how we communicated that. Yeah. And I think language, language is such a, so what was it? So in green light hitting, so you started with the core, uh, and then from the core, you went into was it laterally late? Was the second one like was you able to so do that? Posture. So posture. So um, you got to get kids moving fast. You got to get t- kids turning fast. Um, when you when you get to the higher level, I always find it interesting. They 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 talk about resisting rotation, about not flying open, and the reason they do that is because they they have proved that they can fly open. Right. I mean, you would never instruct someone to not fly open if they didn't have the ability to fly open. Right. Mm-hmm. So the simple fact that they get coached that way proves to you that they have the ability to do that. Right. Well, young kids don't do that. Young kids don't turn fast. Their their core isn't strong. So you got to get them to turn fast. And, and we would say turn fast on one plane. So they they might not even have the core strength to have tilt to be in that athletic position. So we would get them turning fast. And then once they started turning fast, then we would start working on their posture. We would, we would, we would hip hinge and we would, we would make sure they understood this. And then that we would, we would turn with great posture. And then once they started turning with great posture, then we would incorporate the posterior chain. Do you have the ability to manipulate the barrel with these bigger muscles in your back? And then once they could move it with the bigger muscles in the back, then we started to implement, do, do you know how your hands are supposed to work? Do you know how your lower half is supposed to work? And then we would tie those things together. So when I say there was a sequence, it was this proximal to distal, this in to out. Um, but but if a kid doesn't have core strength and if a kid doesn't have posture, it, it's really difficult to, to expect them to be a high-level hitter. And, you know, so you, you see a kid at Go Wags, we would have all these cages hopping on any given night. And, you know, you see a 17-year-old doing these high-level drills and mom and dad were like, should my son be doing those drills? Uh, he's miles from those drills. Like, I, no offense, like that that's going to come down the road, but we have this systematic plan that, and, and we have to explain it. Like, I, this isn't me just shooting darts at a dartboard. This is me having studied it, understanding uh, skill acquisition concepts and how the body works and and, 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 and knowing that you need to be successful for your competition. If you're an eight-year-old and you want to play nine-year-old baseball, you need to be good against eight-year-olds, right? That will give you confidence to show back up. You need to be, you need to be good enough so you can keep getting better. And if you keep showing up, we'll keep giving you the necessary stuff. And if you keep having a love for the game, a passion for the game, you're good enough, you keep growing, eventually you'll get there. You'll get all of this stuff in due time. But I, I think when when athletes 
train without this plan. They're just doing this dartboard method, just trying to see what sticks. But, you know, I did, I did the work. Like I, I went in and I dug after, and I was like, this is, this is how we're going to train our guys. And this is, this is, they believed in me and the parents believed in me, the coaches believed in me and the players believed in me. So we had, we had success that way. I think, I think a lot of it too, like where just a laterally late, you know, and just how you touched base, like you made the come the steps your own, you know, being able to communicate that you can tell you, like you can really communicate it well, where like, that's part of it. Like where like, I can clearly articulate like these different steps where guys can then fully understand, like, here's my, where I'm at. Yeah. You know, like, man, that was, that was, and that's part of it. Like where it's not even really what we know. I think, uh, like you said it earlier, it was, um, oh man, I don't even know how you said it. it was it was awesome. It was about the content, um, and the intent, you know. Intent, but yeah. like, but like, but they, but at the end of the day, like our kids need to know how to to transfer these things. You know, one of my, one of, one of, what I always enjoyed was that we would go to to these tournaments on weekends, and you can hear how passionate I am and how much research I've done and how I worked with my guys. But I did it. I did it during the week, right? I mean, we got after, and I spent long evenings. You know, I would teach until three, and I'd be in the cage until eight thirty, and and with all my guys and and my brother and and uh, and others that coached with us, and we would we would go to Ripken or Diamond Nation, and we would be in a cage, and these other coaches would be just coaching their kids incessantly, just just vomiting all over them. And I was like, guys, like this isn't the time. You've lost your opportunity. It's over. Like we, you play us next. You missed your opportunity. Our guys are, our guys are ready. Like the, and you, and you, I, I mean, part of me was like, do you, I wonder if they even think if I'm coaching, right? Like this isn't this, right. And that, that's what they enjoyed. They, they knew that, that the week, the week was, was our time together, but, but, but they, they invested in the message. They invested in, in what we did at practice. And then I invested in them on weekends and I just wanted to show up and watch them do their thing. That was, that, that was, that was, that was my entertainment. My, my work schedule was the week. And then the weekend was my entertainment. For sure. That's why I just like, so let's t- take us through like pregame, right? Yeah. Take me through like pregame. Cause it's something that I've always, cause like, you know, I'm in travel baseball and this and that, just looking at um, when you get into pregame, you know, you know, pregame is pretty abbreviated at every level, but you get your time in the cage and like, so you being the teacher that you are and, and and getting guys to be in the best place for the game, what does pregame look like for you? Well, now I'm, I'm assuming you mean, cause we don't get field time. Like, at a right. Time like right. just you even know. just like that, that cage time where you do see all these guys and like you've been a rep and you got six cages right. all right here and what they're all doing. Like, you know, right. what kind of, what kind of things did you like to get them locked in or maybe compete with each other or just, you know, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't want them. I, I just, so I would do count hitting. Like I would, I would do a lot of count stuff. I wanted to make sure they had the right frame of mind for certain counts. Uh, so if we would, if we were in a cage, maybe the first round is, Hey, first pitch. Oh, oh maybe the second round is two Oh, maybe one, two, you know, so I'm just, and I'm moving them around a little bit, just give them an idea. I think sometimes we, we ignore the fact that every swing ever taken in the history of the sport had a count associated with it. I think sometimes when we take batting practice, we just let them swing and we don't associate a count with it. I don't know. I don't know if, if we're doing them favors there, but 
you know, a lot of times what we would do is we would go down the line and, and I would, I would be this imaginary pitcher and they would be swinging out along the line and I would give them, you know, two Oh, and I would throw it and then they would swing. And sometimes I would say curveball, see it big, you know, and, and then take it or not take it. I don't know. What are you going to see? And so I was just trying to get them in the right frame of mind that, you know, be, be ready to hit, um, be ready to hit from the word go. Oh, Oh, two Oh, um, you know, honestly, pregame stuff for me was just making sure they're in the right frame of mind to do their thing. And, and for the most part, they were, they were, and I, I really, boy, I hesitated on, on overcoaching on game day. Like I just was scared to death of complicating the thing for them. We did all that stuff. This was their time. Um, man, the, the only, <laughs> the only time I tended to talk too much was when the other coach got me irritated, right? Like, because, and I say that because, I went in with the mindset like this is their time. I'm going to sit on a bucket. I'm going to clap. I'm going to call a pick off here and there. I'm going to put them in no doubles here and there. But and then that other guy just starts consuming the game like he's loud and obnoxious. And my guys are being distracted by his overcoaching. And so I'm like, I don't want this to go this way. So then I speak up, and that's when I get in trouble. So, but. I swear I I just wanted to sit on that bucket and enjoy myself, but it didn't always work out that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny how that works out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just, you know, I mean, because you get into these events and you do travel baseball and you don't have a, you know, you, you have a small amount of pregame time where you can get on yep. the field. <clears throat> you know, just, just looking at your creative ways and, you know, when you're trying to do that. But I think, you know, there definitely certainly is something about have a feel for your guys and are they ready yeah. to play? No, um, I would hit pop-ups too. Like I really like doing that. If they could give me the outfield, I enjoyed hitting pop-ups, communication stuff, you know, that we would always rep that infield goes out quiet, outfield comes out loud and bold, or outfield comes in loud and bold, and we could take advantage of that. Yeah, for sure. That's a that's, that's a great thing. Like you say, if kids love pop, I think it's just that it's 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 so much more of, uh, you know, it's, it is fun. They get to run around, but there's also a lot of talk and it's, it's yeah. less, it's not, it's, it should be pretty easy. You know, I think this, the skill acquisition part, you know, is, yeah. is definitely on the down um, for the pressure of the situation. So, but um, yeah, you're right. It's definitely something that is, uh, you know, it's definitely not repped enough, but I love, I love like, man, you see Wendy, especially early spring days when that wind's blown boy, like, yeah, I don't know something to me about being a coach. Like, oh, today's a great day for pop up communications. Yeah, well, and the catcher, the catcher, it's it's like he needs that ball. He needs that ball as often as he can get that ball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, coach. So I love. So just scrolling through Twitter and things like that, and like and just the great things, like man, going down the rabbit hole of your lineup. So of course, you know you're banging guys like left and right, but uh, I just um, going through your stuff. Um, as one great post that you had, like a thread, I forget it was probably was it last year? You did the big mock up on all like your lineups and like you know yeah. you're, you're all the research about it. But like, how how much of that you know? Because um, it was that was pretty recent when you did that. But was were you how were you constructing these lineups? Or like how would you think? Because like you said, you've always been very great offensively. So like um, through this research now, like how would you construct a good lineup? So I teach uh, statistics and I, I have a class sports statistics. And I, I think the, the data analytics has really evolved where 
you're, you know, the, the lineup is now seen more circular than linear and the leadoff guy, it's about, it's about every, every spot is about 15 to 18 more at bats over, over a season, right? A long season. So I am a big proponent of best hitters up as early as often. Just that's, I'm a big, I'm a, I'm a big, I would say shock and shock and all every, every team I coached that leadoff guy, you had to, you had to be on your game to, to get him. And, um, it, it was, it was one of our, if not our best hitter, certainly one of our top two or three guys, he was very formidable. We put him right up front. Number two was right behind him, And we just stacked it, stacked it that way. I mean, that was, that's as simple as I could say. And the, the Twitter post that you're talking about, that was right in the middle of COVID. That was yeah. me being bored and digging in and, you know, we all had time and I was like, I wonder where this could take me. Yeah. You got the time into that now. You I was like, Oh my gosh, I get up so early. So I was like, I mean, I was doing that way before anyone else was up and I, I have fun doing it. But the answer to your question, it simply is um, the, the lead off the two. Now what I did, what I do find interesting is the cleanup hitter, the cleanup hitter in the data analytics should strike out least often. And in the old game, the strikeout hitter was that power guy that struck out a lot, but the data analytics say, because there's so much traffic on the bases with him that, that you don't want that strikeout with a runner on third and one out, like you might prefer that, that four, three put out to pick up an RBI. So I think that's one way the game has, has changed in that regard, that that the 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 uh, the four hitter is 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 now perceived as a as a low strikeout guy. The three hitter is perceived as a high on base guy, high exit velocity guy to get on anyway, whether even by error. But those top two guys have to be uh, high slugging, high on base percentage guys. So like how how like how. Is this is this something new, like where you went to more the analytical side and started to look at that uh, prior to like you know COVID and things like that when you used to put when you were, were putting up lineups? Like how how did that change? Or is that something you just you just got into? Yeah, I'm a I'm a like I said I'm a st- statistics guy, so I, yeah. I started teaching statistics and uh, I'm 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 fairly competent with with what they say and how you interpret them, but. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, I'm not sure that that the data analytics revolution hasn't harmed the game more than helped it in some way. So I don't want to say that like I'm one of them because mm-hmm. I'm not. I, I know I know what it says. It's the law of large numbers. When you collect enough of a sample, the trends start to appear. It's why the shift is the shift. It's like the sh- the shift is the shift because you've collected enough samples that says this is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. But but the law of large numbers doesn't account for your pitcher's ability to crumble if he doesn't get the double play ball that he's supposed to get. Like it doesn't speak to that. So if you shift, but your pitcher is a house of cards and can't handle when things don't go his way when he expects a double play to be turned. Like I don't know if you can shift. You you have to account for all those things. I, uh, I, and and then and then so like if you look at if you look at the law of large numbers and it says your your leadoff hitter is going to get fifteen to eighteen more at bats. So this is who this guy should be. Okay, well that might be true in a marathon, but now when you go to the sprint of a seven game playoff series or a three game, well now now it it might change entirely. 
now because you're not going to get that volume, now maybe you want someone else in the leadoff spot, right? Because that that's what baseball is. Baseball is this marathon to determine who are your best teams, and then, then we award the, the team that sprints the best at the end. Hmm. So it's very – it's very, very. De- I'm aware of the data analytics. I respect them. Uh, in in many ways, you can't argue with them. That's 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 the law of large numbers. But every every manager deserves his intuition. He deserves the ability to rely on experience. He deserves the right to say, "I know my players uh, and what they're capable of doing in certain spots. Like they just deserve that right. And sometimes the data analytics don't honor that right. No, no. Yeah. Just to say that's fully right. There's just definitely something to say about the guts and like you said, being able to handle the pressure, but I, I but I do like it there. You, like you said, you've also respect them and you've also give it their due justice, just like they should also with someone who just goes off a of feel and what their yeah. eyes see because they've done it for so much and they're going to know what this guy's going to look like coming seventh night. Cause some guys can can't even foresee the game, what it's going to look like two right. and three, four innings later. So I, I think what the world series was, it was, I forget was, was when they, the, the Tampa Bay Rays pulled Blake Snell, but Blake Snell was mowing. I think it was the, was it the Astros or the Dodgers? They're mowing them down. And, uh, they they pulled they pulled Blake Snell in like the fifth inning or sixth inning because the data said that, you know they it was his time. Well, come on, like a co a manager has to be permitted to say this is Game Seven of the World Series. I'm not doing that. Right. There's there, I'm not doing that. He's gonna stay. He's gonna like no. I I know what your numbers say, but this is it. Like I don't want to live with the regret of not letting this guy keep going. Mm-hmm. So I, I we we you, you always have to grant that intuition and that, that manager's gut, you have to. And, and truthfully, if you remove it, you're going to, you're going to miss really good baseball players, really good baseball people doing what they do really well. You're just going to turn it over to the, to the ivory tower and let the, let the administration run the game. And you're going to miss out on some really good baseball people. Oh, for sure. You know, and that even just miss on a lot of the stories that everybody likes, you know, yeah. and, and everybody goes like, this is like, uh, absolutely. Like it just, it just, it can't be all or nothing. So for everyone who wants to go analytics, then you can't be all like, Oh, I'm going to be all feel either. Like, it's just right. like, if you want it to have its day, like it has its day. I take it in consideration and here's where I'm going to go with it. But like, yeah, right. like game seven, our dudes on the mound, like we're going to essentially give them, much more confidence because he's no longer on the mound. That's right. What's that got to say? You know what I mean? Right. Like what that is, like you said, it doesn't take into account even like what that would do to the other side to even give them Absolutely. more confidence because right. like, <laughs> yeah, this guy's, <laughs> this guy's shoving it. Like, thank right. you. Like, that's right. It, that's right. You know, it certainly doesn't do that justice, but yeah, like there's, there's no way, but like, but like you said though, I, I think you can't just throw it out the window either. There's definitely those situations where, Yep, this guy's up the middle. I'll like get him over here. Like, like, you know, it, just the 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 date. Got to it. Also, get, has it have its time to? Hey, this is what it says. That's what we're gonna go right. with. Yep, yep. You know, especially if we're trying to make best decisions for people. Like, how are you not gonna get as much information as you can? Right. You know, but yeah, yeah. I think that decision was made out of fear or something because that was no way. 
Yeah, that was a tough one. Blake's now. I forgot about that, but yeah, it's, that was rough. Rough. Man. Shoo. Dude, coach, this is this is a lot of fun. I love it. I love it. Um, man. And so as as much as oh, I don't know, I, I love diving into the lineups and like even this kind of like so how would you even at the I guess at your at any level, like what would you say like right now would be the best thing per level like that you would track in terms of data? Like what would you want to see like um hitting wise or possibly even through per pitchers? Like what are some of the data that you might would track? Well, I think the higher you go, I think you have to you have to own the the, the actual strike zone. I do think that the highest of levels that becomes the critical piece is that you, you have to. So to answer your question, I guess right now I'm talking about the highest levels. I think uh, pitchers need to get swings and misses in the strike zone, and hitters need to avoid swings and misses in the strike zone. That's what I would be tracking. I think the pitching the the pitchers have evolved to a point where the game is being played at a level never, never seen before. So the, the swing and miss is so common. So I think if you can minimize the swing and miss, I think you've got it. Uh, but I also think on the other side as a pitcher, if you can get the swing and miss in the strike zone. So that's the one, the one metric that I think is ultra valuables. Who's owning the strike zone. Um, I think because the athletes on the field are so darn good, incredible, the best the world has ever seen. Uh, I think that's why exit velocity is a big deal. I, uh, so exit velocity coupled, coupled, coupled with launch angle, they call that, that I think it's barrel percentage. They give that the barrel percentage term is that there's, they give you a range. So a certain exit velocity married to a certain launch angle, it becomes a barrel Right. So that barrel percentage becomes something of value that that can translates into the hits. And that's where sabermetrics lives is they're they're trying to evaluate your ability by removing the defense. Right. They want to know what you should be capable of doing if this defense wasn't out there. So these expected averages or expected hits. Right. So uh, as an offensive player, I would be. I would want to know who's dominating. Are you owning the, the the strike zone with your with your 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 swing and miss percentage and your contact rate? Uh, I would want to know your exit velocity married to your launch angle, which in turn becomes a barrel percentage. Um, and then in the with, with the with the pitchers, just just the opposite is true. I would want weak contact. I'd want to know weak contact. I'd want to know um, how how often I get a swing and miss. Um, there, there are, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to come back from sabermetrics, but the sabermetrics has this thing of pitching independent fielding or, uh, or fielding independent pitching. I forget how they order it, but they're basically trying to evaluate how good is a pitcher if without the defense, eliminate the ground balls, eliminate the fly balls. All that stuff is subjective. Hmm. All we care about is strikeouts and, and the things that you can control, the strikeouts, the home runs you give up, the walks, things like that. I don't know if that's healthy or not. I, I, I think, you know, if you have a sinker ball pitcher and he's got Omar Vizquel behind him, I don't think it's his fault that he's pitching to his strength. Sure. Right? Like, why wouldn't you throw ground balls? But 
sabermetrics penalizes that guy. He's getting ground balls. And, you know, you can't help that Omar Vizquel's behind you. What if you had an average shortstop behind you? So we penalize you for that. So I don't know. I, I, I think I, I do think because the data exists and the data can track a strike zone. I think you have to honor the strike zone. You have to recognize who's owning it, who's winning it. You can do that by contact rate and swing and miss. But then when the ball is put in play from a hitter, how hard are you hitting it and what angle are you hitting it? That's the barrel percentage. You know, and, and the, the one awesome question to ask is, you know, would you rather go 0 for 4 with four lasers to the center fielder or 4 for 4 with four jam sandwiches? And the answer is I'd rather go 4 for 4. Like, who are we kidding? Like, I want the four knocks, right? I want the four knocks. But the, 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 the people with the money, they don't, they don't want that. They want, they want the four lasers. They want to know that in the long run, those are going to play. Right. right. The, the, the four barreled balls are going to play over the long run. And, and that's how data has changed the game. Like then that's why they dismiss batting average and, and they dismiss it because they're not, they're not embracing those conventional numbers anymore because they're embracing the expected value that if I keep barreling balls at a certain exit velocity at a certain launch angle, eventually it'll pay off. So, you know, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's where it took me. No, no, it, it definitely did. So I meant my other question then too is because, you know, guys are teaching coaching at all levels yep. and I'm just thinking like, how would you do that for the lower levels? Like what would you, how would you, I, I think, yeah, at the at the lower levels, I think we we make a mistake by 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 emphasizing exit velocity. I think exit velocity and launch angle is a function of maturity, um, and and it, it it comes when you know the game and you've seen enough breaking balls and and you're and you're hitting the breaking ball when the you know that the breaking ball is the ball that gets elevated authentically. Like that's the thing you catch it out in front. You, you 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 take advantage of the spin already on the pitch and then it elevates on its own right and and that's how you hit home runs off of that curveball but young kids they don't even know how to hit the curveball yet so at the young age you've got to make contact you've got to line drives line drives line drives uh and i don't want to say that home runs are mistakes but but i'm going to err on that side more than than the other side like i think at the young age, before maturity, before experience, you're looking for those those line drives, those doubles become the perfect the perfect batted ball. That's what I would say. Is there any again you like? Let's say that implicit training. Like, uh, are you trying to compete within that? Like, trying to say, hey, we're going to have so many of these, or is that something that you would try to challenge them? So, look naturally kids want to hit balls far, right? Yep. Like you take young kid and you take him out to a field and kids want to hit balls far. Many times. I, I mean, all my son wanted to do was hit home runs when he was little. Like that's, that's human nature. They want to hit home runs, but you know, and, and, and there's awesome video of that little dude hitting that home run and the dad's going crazy on the mound. Like that's it. Like, you know, take your kid, closer to the fence and let him hit a home run. That's, that's the inspiration piece that I don't want to ever neglect hitting balls over fences always plays. It always gets kids coming back. But what a young kid doesn't understand that, that his father or coach should understand is that 
when when a when a when a kid throws soft, his ball has an arc, and a, and a and a and a long swing can match that arc and be successful. When those pitchers throw faster, the arc flattens out, and only a flatter swing can match the plane. So you you want to promote this by by implicitly having younger kids with that that have good hand eye coordination hit balls on a flatter path right so don't don't always just stand up like take a knee and throw it throw it flatter so they can match the plane of a flatter pitch easier and try to get that line drive cuz if you throw it with a big arc and they match that arc they are going to lift balls they're going to lift balls they're going to blast them they're going to hit them far and that's great. It's fun. Everyone wants to hit balls far, but at the young age, if if you're trying, if you're if you're looking, if you got your eye on the future, and you're looking at also developing your kid, uh, you want to flatten that arc so they're matching the plane of a flatter pitch, which in turn should be more line drives and doubles instead of home runs. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome stuff, Coach. Really appreciate it. So, Coach, I mean, I mean, well, here we are over an hour already, man. Like, this is awesome. Um, just, just different things I've just uh, like just thought about, and and just uh, just interested to hear your take on them. Like, um, um, just a bit, a little about your book. You know, with the River Cats and how they won. You know, like I guess you dive into a lot of a lot of these kind of things and we haven't really talked any kind of pitching or anything like that you kind of deal with about like just you i guess your philosophy almost is here's what i want the hitters to do and the pitchers could do the exact opposite yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> no um you know so like how are you like and because yeah, that's one thing we didn't talk about like within your pitch within your like your 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 practice organization like what how have you been able to train your pitchers in that setting as well so you know the one thing that's interesting is hitters hitters swing at the same plate in practice that they do in a game. And so they get comfortable in a in a in a batter's box that they're going to inherit in a game. But pitchers have these different homes. One is the bullpen and one is the game mound. And sometimes we don't do our pitchers a service by putting them on the game mound enough, right? We put them on the game mound for PFP and we put them on the game mound for occasional live batter. But, but oftentimes it's all their work is in the bullpen. And then we throw them out in the mound and say, Hey, I hope you're comfortable out there. Mm-hmm. So, so I think what I would do a lot of times when I would do my coach pitch stuff, I would always put a pitcher behind me and I would, I would, function off of him so he got comfortable being on a game mound not throwing off of it just being on the mound looking in at batters simulating a pitch and then i would throw it as the coach so um you know i'm i'm really big imagination guy i i think very few coaches embrace the power of the imagination and what visualization can do uh so you know just thinking about pitching and practice, you know, you can get guys out there visualizing, executing pitches on the mound. Uh, You can incorporate pitchers for my coach pitch stuff. Like I said, don't just have the coach be the coach pitch. Make sure there's a live pitcher behind you executing what it is he's doing, visualizing, executing a pitch, but not throwing a pitch, you know, so um, that was stuff that we would do. 
but but the how the river cats one book was was a lot was more on like relationships and competition and less on the technical stuff that green light hitting was on okay i do i do really like yeah it's it's and isn't isn't it such a there's such unique things about our game you know like like the pitcher's not mostly throwing never on the ball and then the game mound you know not, not often no there's just not enough there's just i mean i yeah. I mean, they build the bullpens to get the guy work, but yeah, I, I honestly feel like they they deserve more time out in that mound than they get. Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's just a unique, very such a unique thing, right. you know. You imagine taking most of your basketball shots like on a practice <laughs> side, right. right? And then go, hey, now you got to go on the that that's your that's your hoop out there, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, even when it comes to like even like hitting to other times too, I think you know we, they the kids don't see enough velo or they don't get to see enough unpredictable BP. You know, right. I think right. we've heard a lot of that skill acquisition. You know, Astros really brought a lot at the light. You know, like guys that would get carved up, and you know how much that was part of you know right. their their kind of development was like they they brought a pitching machine on the road. You know, yeah. like yes. how yes. how much that became. Um, you know, in baseball, it's it's just funny that. It's just so unique that there's just not enough of that. I think because it's some of it is is so much of the mental piece. You know, like you said, right. if you're getting carved up and you're in a place that okay, we gotta break it down here a little bit. Right, right. You know, it's such a it's such a unique thing. I think just to the the mental the mentality of the game. But what are your what are your thoughts on that? Like why 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 is it? And I think it's definitely getting better, but it seems like it's so unique in terms of we do these things in the terms of baseball and it's not it, what we do why, in a game. Why, yeah. What you mean? Why, why do we do things that, that don't always translate when you, when you think yeah. about it? Well, I, I certainly the status quo is easier to accept, you know, coaches typically are former players that adopt the, the methods of their coaches, you know, so it takes a very, uh, creative mind to question what their coaches did before, right? It's the whole, well, I was always taught mindset. Well, you know, you were always taught by a fellow human being that, that was, wasn't perfect and maybe just accepted orthodoxy like everyone else. So yeah, I, I think, I think, um, you know, that certainly the, the pitching machine is here to stay. That whole idea of, of recreating velocity is here to stay. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think in in many ways, I took a lot of pride in, in trying to. You know, I, I had one guy tell me that you know I condensed time more than anyone he's ever seen, and and hmm. I think that's what he meant was like you know be creative with your time. Don't just shag with your pitchers. Don't just don't just hit fungos to your infielders. Like don't just use your catchers to catch for your fungo guys. Like figure it out, you know, use, delegate, use your assistant coaches, but that field is bigger than you think. And, and your brain is more powerful than you think, like use it all, like challenge, challenge those things. And, and I think, I think you can, but you got to be creative and, and you've got to, you, you, I mean, people, people are, are smart, but they get in routines, they get in rhythms. They, they, they like what they like. And, I'm not, I'm not, I, I was always, I mean, that's, again, I, I love practice. Like I loved it. It's, I honestly, it's why I teach. It's why I coach. Like I just like writing 
practices. <laughs> <laughs> I like writing practices. I like I like organizing a classroom and seeing it flow and knowing that I do it different than most and and the people enjoy that their time with me. Like that's ultimately what I'm after. That it was time well spent. It was a moment to remember and and they'll look back on it fondly. That's what I'm after. Coach Kyle Wagner, just with some great information, I think information that looking at this, reflecting on it, how well do we have systems? How well does the systems, because it's the systems work, and typically it's a breakdown of the system when guys aren't producing and being executing, and it's a systematic approach where it really works and it really just shows through. I love the language, the language making it his own. Coach Wagner makes this language his own. Said it like everyone says, stay inside the ball. Move laterally late. You know, those are ways that you are staying inside the ball, but it's a way that it made sense to him. It's how he can truly articulate it. It's how he can really teach it. And the more he can do that, then the better it's going to be. The Hopefully then the kids truly can say it and the kids can do it. And, um, you know, it, it, it's the practices and the ways that he's developing works for numerous ages uh and so i think just the way that we see more things in game situations um the more we can get kids together as a team and i love those uh, as quotes of practice are for the coaches and games are for the players great philosophies and just to be able to kind of have that sense of how much over coaching is there how much can we let them sit back how much are they really developing? And then the kind of development that we're doing. So that's kind of what we had touched base about is the game situations, you know, how, how to get better in a game and what we're trying to do in the situations to help them be prepared for the games. Uh, and then skill acquisition. You know, you're not able to do this next step if you can't do this really well. Skill acquisition, to practicing ugly, to practicing deliberately to slowing it down and, and practicing with 100%, making it perfect. And other times, you're going to fail, and it's going to look terrible, and you got to get through it, and it's just it's coming at you. But that's skill acquisition. And so just to speak on both of those things, how he talks about implicitly teaching and explicitly teaching, um, fairly well said, just really well done. I really enjoyed it. Coach Wagner, again, thank you so much. Not following him on Twitter, follow him, go wag Kyle. Great follow, great thinker. Uh, dive into the rabbit hole of the lineup. Uh, it was something that was done, he did during COVID, and, and man, it's it's really wild. He dives into the analysis of a lineup and the numbers and statistics, and but that's even like, that's a part of it, and then you can still do that. It's just, it's a really great thread. Um, it has some great thinking to it, and so uh, something we had talked about afterwards. So it, it, it's, it's a lot of fun, and um, hope you guys enjoyed it. I uh, took a lot of notes, and uh, I'm sure I'm going to be thinking about this and thinking about this next time that I want to put guys in great situations and, you know, teaching the system. So, great job, Coach Wagner. Thank you, guys. And until next time, keep getting better. <laughs>